Married with Children, the podcast. Hosted by Dustin and Callie. Follow us on social media. On Twitter, at Married underscore Show. Facebook, Married with Children Show. On Instagram, Married with Children Show. Or reach out to us in an email, MarriedWithChildrenShow at gmail.com. We're always looking for guests and sponsors. If you have a name of a guest that would be an interesting interview on the Married with Children Show, please send that information to us through social media or straight to our email address, Also, if you have a small business that you'd be interested in being a sponsor on the show, please reach out to us through an email so that we can work out a way that best suits you and our listeners. Also, if you like the podcast, be willing to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Welcome back to the Married with Children podcast. A very exciting day today. We've got two of the candidates for the indiana house of representatives out of district 69 uh with us right now is nancy franke welcome nancy nice to be here thank you for inviting me well we are excited to kind of hear your take on things and again we're going to have uh uh, jim with us a little later to get his take and it should be an exciting day so callie how are you not bad i'm really excited i think this is going to be cool we've never done the a podcast like this one before so yeah we're, it's, we're it's new right. for us so we're looking forward to it it's our first jump into the political yeah, realm for sure. yeah <laughs> political for sure yeah so nancy tell us a little bit just about kind of your backstory and and you know why you chose to to run for office okay well i've never been one for getting involved with politics so much I, i'm always interested on the side but it started probably Eight years ago, when I ran for school, the school board for Seymour Schools, and the reason I ran was because I saw we needed to have a change in the dynamics of our, our school corporation, and I wanted to serve and make a difference. Uh, it wasn't to, uh, I didn't have an agenda except for let's improve what we have and, and make things better for our children. And as I continued serving on the school board, I realized a lot of items that needed to be taken care of at the local level couldn't because of the hands that were tied at the state level. And as we talked more throughout education, we realized someone needs to be the voice at at the state level to make those changes. And it's not just about education. I mean, we, we really have a lot of aspects within our community that needs to be addressed. Uh, The drug opioid epidemic, especially in the last few years, uh, has been just mind-boggling and and life-changing for a lot of people. We need to address those issues. Uh, I've also talked with others about the tax reform issues. Uh, Property taxes continue to raise, and we do not have a way to have control of that at the local level, and I think those things need to be addressed at the state level as well. Uh, I've always had a servant heart, and I just want to be a part of improving our communities. Now, you you teach, correct? Correct. I'm a teacher at St. Peter's in Columbus. And and served on a school board. So mm-hmm. you have a lot of educational background right. there. So I know that education is a big issue for you. And one, and both of us are actually educators. Mm-hmm. Um, and when when we look at right now kind of the 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 idea of the the realm of education teacher recruitment and teacher retention is is horrible oh yes Um, and it's getting worse absolutely so how do you think if if you are elected how do you think you can help with teacher recruitment and retention you know this started back in 2010 
uh, when the state took over uh, divvying out our taxes to the schools and making the assumption of how much each school was going to receive per student. Taking that control away from the local authorities started started the mess. Uh, our education environment is just toxic right now. Uh, teachers are frustrated. More and more responsibilities are placed on them. Uh, we have anxiety within not just the teachers, but within the administration. Uh, it's almost like it, this environment has been created to pit each other against each yeah. other against yeah. one another. I, I would agree. Yeah, and that's not how it used to be. Right. And even uh, you know, I'm I'm a parochial school teacher. I started 26 years ago. When I started teaching, we had a wonderful relationship with our community schools. It wasn't one versus the other. But I think as our nation and as our state keeps continued to shift towards this business model. That's what's tearing apart our, our yeah. schools well, and our communities. You're constantly, you feel like you're competing. Correct. Constantly. So, I yeah. mean, you're you're constantly competing against, mm-hmm. uh, like you said, other, you know, other local schools or, I mean, just, right. it just, it's terrible. Yeah. And the ones who are suffering are our children. Absolutely. Yeah. I've never seen so much anxiety and stress levels at, at an elementary age like I have today. Right. And it just continues to get worse. Two years ago when I, I ran on a very grassroots effort, I thought, well, certainly it can't get any worse than it is right now. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two years later, it, it's even uh, worse than before, and we just need to get a handle on this. And I think the scary thing is is that kids are being encouraged, students mm-hmm. are being encouraged to not go into education. And right, correct. right. I correct. say this all the time. If I was an older teacher that my kids are already through, I can understand mm-hmm. you trying to have that perspective, but we have a three-year-old and one on the way. So for me, I need the best of the best going exactly. into education. Exactly. I see <laughs> outstanding teachers leaving mm-hmm. uh, because, well, for various reasons, but like I said, it comes right down to the environment of the classroom, of the schools, of the politics that are being played into it that no one signed up for to begin yeah. with. Yeah. And, you know, with the standardized testing, I realize there's a control level at the federal level. Well, instead of just throwing up our hands and saying, well, we can't do anything about it. The feds have have control. Get ourselves over there to D.C. and talk to the people who need to make those changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's what I I plan to do this summer, actually. Well, we were my husband and I were going to go to D.C. over spring break, uh, but we had to postpone plans because of this campaign. (laughs) Uh, But we decided this summer we're going to make efforts to get over to dc i've already been in contact with several people in the dc office to right. say hey this summer i'd like to to meet with you because you need to do your part at the federal level so we can do our part at the state level right well because then i mean obviously your hand like you said your hands are tied mm-hmm. at the local level sure. because of i mean it just keeps going up mm-hmm. yeah and i don't think people realize the the tie-in because another one of your major issues on your website is you know the manufacturing here and Correct. the advanced manufacturing we have students I, I work at jennings county high school and we have students that are perfect candidates for that mm-hmm. but get caught in this testing remediation testing yeah, exactly. remediation so our ability to get them with hands-on mm-hmm. opportunities is almost impossible. Right. Seymour schools, we have almost 200 students in work-based learning programs this year. Right. And the sad thing is 
if we send too many students into the work-based program right after graduation, Seymour schools get docked. Mm -hmm. I just had a conversation with a constituent today when I was going door to door. Uh, if, If a school sends more students towards the workplace, or uh, I should take that back. If your rate of how many students you send off to college goes down, you get docked points. That's why Seymour schools can rarely ever get an A accountability mm-hmm. rating. Right. With the formula, the way it's set up, uh, you know, schools like Trinity, fine school, most of their students head off to college. Right. So it's so easy for them to get the A accountability They're getting score those points and for that. Four, yeah. four stars. Our other schools, we're working towards helping our students walk into a field that's best for them, but the majority, it's not for college. Right. And so now our schools get docked and we get these lower grades, if you want to call it that. And it's not because the schools aren't successful. It's because the formula has been uh, corrupt and it, it needs to be reformulated and we have employers out there with great jobs begging for these kids yes begging absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. they just want kids who who have some of those skills in advanced manufacturing that'll work hard that have right. you know the the soft skills professional skills mm-hmm. to come in and do the right thing and they're begging for them for high paying good jobs yes, absolutely and you know i think uh a lot in the community also don't realize Things like we, we uh, classes we had before, like industrial arts and home mm-hmm. ec, we have those courses, but they're they are the tech advanced courses mm-hmm. that the manufacturers are looking for. Right, and we are training them. We just don't call them industrial arts anymore. Right, there are other there are other uh, higher tech names for that, but it's the same idea. And we are trying to prepare students for that, uh, for going into those fields. We just need to take away the stigma of the idea that a student has to go on to college right after high school. Yeah, I know. I That's that's the thing is, is that's not for everybody. No. And I mean, like I, I'm a high school teacher. And so it's like, you. Can, I mean, I can see some of these kids that they would be, I mean, they're going to be so successful in some of those manufacturing fields mm-hmm. to where they, they're not meant to go to college. And that's fine. I mean, they're going to do and be very successful with, with any of that. Absolutely. And I love what you just said. And I had this conversation the other day because I'm in school administration. And one of my my areas, my departments to evaluate is our, our tech department. Mm-hmm. And I was having a conversation with those guys. And I said, you know, when I was in, in my industrial tech classes and no knock on them, I turned a bowl on the lathe and I made a clock, a mm-hmm. wood clock. I walk in today. We've got one class that's building a full tiny house, wiring it, you know, plumbing it, putting the entire tiny house together. We've got another group I walk in, they're printing things on 3D printers. Another one is building electric go-karts that they're going to race at the Indy Motor Speedway. And I'm just like, if this had been available, I don't know that I would have... I love my job, love right. education, not not knocking it, mm-hmm. but I would have taken a lot harder look at some of this stuff because this is amazing right. what these guys are doing. Absolutely. And it's actually one of our hidden gems with the schools. Like, We need to get that message out there. I don't think many people realize mm-hmm. just what great aspects our schools are doing for our students. Yeah. My son, he's in the work-based learning program and works over at Excel Manufacturing. And it really has opened his eyes of what he can do later on. He, he's planning to head up to Fort Wayne, take some advanced classes so he can get into digital technology mm-hmm. and right. digital engineering. 
But it started with these work-based learning programs to expose him to a whole new field of ideas that he did not realize before. And a lot of employers will actually, for a lot of kids, if they get them in the door, they'll send them and pay them for them to go yeah. and get that extra That's education. Right. You are correct. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and there is. There is a stigma about those trades. There's a stigma. And, mm-hmm. and you know, one of the employers there in, in Jennings County that I visited the other day my father retired from General Motors and worked in foundries, and I remember going and visiting there, and they were dirty. They were hot. They were loud. They were, and and when I walk in this tool and die, it's cool. You mm-hmm. can you can have a conversation. It's quiet. It's not dirty. Guys aren't you know breaking their back. They're working with right. with machines, and mm-hmm. and so the whole field has changed from what I saw my dad do in manufacturing, you know, for thirty years to what it is today and that stigma really has to come off of those things and i know governor holcomb has been pushing for indiana to be number one in manufacturing we need to do our part to help keep it that way and what i like to do is take that to the state house what i see within our our education field and what we can do to make this happen very cool you brought up the drug epidemic, which is obvious. I mean, especially in, in our area here, um, we've seen a lot of, you know, families struggle with that and families from all different socioeconomics that deal with the opioid epidemic mm-hmm. and the heroin epidemic. And, you know, where do you think your candidacy and, and if you're elected to the state house, where do you think you can help with that? Well, I've, I've already built up a great uh, rapport and uh, networking with the state on this very subject. And Governor Holcomb actually has sent Jim McClellan and several others uh, from his state office to come down to Jackson County to speak with the Jackson County Drug-Free Council. I'm on the council now as a, a board a board member. Uh, we need to make sure the state remembers that this area needs help just as much as Indianapolis, Fort Wayne, Gary, uh, and some of those larger cities. We need to address the addiction and the treatment for it, just like any other addiction. There, there's a, a lot of different aspects in how to treat it. There's not one great answer for it. Uh, but I do believe a, a treatment center, uh, other avenues that we can help reach those who are, are fighting the addiction will be so needed in this area, and uh, and that's something I'm going to be pushing for. Uh, there's there's no one way to do this uh, because everyone's wired differently. Mm-hmm. I know this personally because my parents adopted my younger sister who has been dealing with addiction all her life, and it's it's going to be a lifelong struggle. She will never be able to kick that feeling of her desire for right that drug because of what she has done to her body uh even and she actually the funny thing was it started with marijuana and moved to the harder harder drugs uh she's she's doing well right now but she said it's there every single minute every hour of the day she has to continue with counseling with other treatment options to remind her how important it is to stay away from that and and to fight that. Uh, on the other extreme, we have my elderly mother who is 80, 85 years old. And years back, her doctor uh, back in Iowa loaded her up with pain medicine 
to deal with her pains that she had uh, with uh, back surgery and hip surgery and all that. And uh, she was on that for five years. Uh, we moved her to be closer to us so we could help her. And uh, the local doctor that she has now, we took her off of all that. But it, her body still craves that addiction and or the, that the, the opioids. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we've been also working with uh, different counselors, with uh, healthcare professionals to help her through this because I tell you, when, when she was on it, it, it was it was horrible, absolutely horrible. And it, it affected, impacted the entire family. Uh, and sadly, she lost uh, her her entire her entire financial, uh, you know, how do I want to say that? Uh, just her, her, her stability. Yeah, her stability. So we're the ones who now are taking care of her, making sure she manages things, making sure her medication is managed, making sure uh, her health care team is working with her. Uh, I can't imagine what other families are going through. Well, that's, a, I mean, I think that's interesting just hearing that uh, from you. So, I mean, mm -hmm. like, you've got kind of a personal right you know story and you understand what some of these other mm -hmm. you know families may be going through and i think that's interesting to for yeah. others to know to know that i mean it's not just you saying well it's bad you know i mean you've been through exactly. it in, in different aspects and so. we had to move from the stigma of oh you don't talk about this this is our family's yeah. hidden yeah. secret absolutely i believe that yeah but we're never going to be able to address the issue for the communities if we keep doing that and I think it's interesting too. And, and I'll be honest, I was, I'm probably one that never thought about it as much with the elderly and mm -hmm. the senior citizens. Yeah. And it's so true because they're not the ones that we see on the front page of the paper right. because of an overdose or mm -hmm. because of, yeah. you know, and, and, and probably too, we probably naturally just think, Hey, they need this more because of the pain. And right. I, I, I think that's a great point of, we've got some of them that are suffering with this same mm -hmm. addiction because of what these opioids are doing to them. Correct. And I know uh, at the state level, they've been talking about CBD oils, uh, medical marijuana. I think there may be a place for that in in some avenues. I don't think it's the sure cure fix all for every single mm -hmm. person, but I am glad that they are going to be addressing that in the summer study. And that might be under the guidance of a doctor might be a option for some people again i think that there's other options out there for others that are dealing with it and right. uh each person is different so would medical cannabis be something you would support because it is a hot topic issue it is, right now it is i would support it with the idea that we have regulation as much as i i know i'm a republican and i'm talking regulation <laughs> what what kind of combination is that but this is a a serious uh uh, you know, piece that if we let it go haywire, it, I mean, it would go out of control and we don't want that for our communities or our state. But I do believe there's some uh, great sense in that. Uh, also, I'm, I've been discussing with a, a professor from IU. There's also some others that they're on the brink of new pain medication using uh, the THC without the high that mm -hmm. someone would get right and I don't, I don't think we're very far away i mean months if not just a year or two away from that and i i think uh that would we should seriously give that some consideration as well 
All right, very cool. And and I think I, I appreciate the way that you kind of go about that because you all of this is gray. There mm-hmm. is no right. black and white. And no matter how much we want to say that, you know, I'm on this side, there's gray. And I, I appreciate that about you because it's even if you say, yes, we're going to vote for medical marijuana, you have to have that backup of. How are we going to regulate it? Because, Correct. and I've obviously I've never lived in California. They've had it forever, <laughs> but I know the the stereotype or stigma is that it was a joke. You walk in and mm-hmm. say, "I've I get headaches," and you get your your card. You know, I think it's important that if that's something we do, we do it the right way. Exactly, exactly. And I know, uh, and my son has given me permission to talk about this. He has epilepsy. He's had seizures. I understand what it does to a parent watching your child Mm -hmm. go through a seizure where in my son's case it's just once every once in a while but for a parent to have their child going through seizures daily if not several times a day i appreciate they have that medical option with the cbd oils right now Mm -hmm. Uh, and and again there probably will be a definite proof and advantages for them in use use of medical marijuana no parent wants to see their child going through that each and every single day and the the toll it takes on their body is just incredible and and again if and if there's something that can help that case Mm -hmm. under the idea of a doctor and you know under the guidance of a doctor i think that's it's huge to have that option absolutely well also you know i and i think you have a very interesting story and you kind of led to it with your sister a little bit but you know, you are pro-life, obviously, mm-hmm. and you have an interesting kind of story for why. Well, probably because my birth mother had the opportunity. Well, I, should, I definitely not the opportunity, the choice to either uh, keep me or abort me because she was a, a single mom raising a four-year-old at the time and wasn't married. And at that time, 50 years ago, it would have been just the the again the stigma of oh my goodness she's pregnant what kind of a horrible person is she she chose life and she chose to uh still go through the the birth and she uh put me up for adoption and i was adopted by two parents who were deaf by the way uh and yes and they were never able to have children and they adopted me uh so that's what started the path of if my birth mother did not give me that opportunity to have life, I wouldn't be here today. Uh, another part of the story was uh, our daughter, Rachel, when I was carrying her, things were showing up on the ultrasound that just showed there's there's probably going to be some concerns with her. We didn't know at what point. And... For some reason, the doctor that I had, I was up in northern Wisconsin at the time, the doctor uh, quickly suggested, well, you can always abort and not go through this pregnancy. I just, I remember just standing up off the table. I said, absolutely not. This is not an option. Uh, Rachel definitely has her struggles. Uh, She's, uh, we now know afterwards, you know, after the birth, uh, she has she's on that autism spectrum mm-hmm. uh and you know even as a baby she went through a lot of issues with not only colic but uh, strange times of lethargic 
darkness that we just had no explanation for. Uh, boy, but to think if I had listened to the doctor to say, yeah, we might, you know, might have some problems. Let's let's end it now. Uh, we'd never have Rachel. And uh, I just I value life so much. I it's part of my Christian makeup uh, the, and the, the beliefs that we have about uh, promoting life and protecting life. And that will always be a part of, of who I am. I, I do understand where women have shared, well, what happens in a situation where it's your life versus the unborn child's life. And I do not envy anyone having to go through a decision like that i'm not one that's going to pass judgment uh in my husband and i our decision as parents have always been if it ever came down to that we're going to let god handle this uh but i'm not going to interfere with what a what they are going through and what their doctors are telling them but boy i i would hope uh that they look at, at choosing life. Um, but uh, yeah, there's some, there's some tough situations out there, but I do, I, I know some uh, pro-life groups have asked me, where, are you, where do you stand on some of these bills that are coming through? And I, I definitely will be supporting uh, those pro-life bills. Another big topic right now is uh, obviously gun rights mm-hmm. and kind of, you know, again, going back to your educational background to kind of pair that with, uh, school safety. Mm-hmm. Kind of talk about where you stand on those things. <laughs> wow, that's been a hot topic for the last six months. Yes. yes. Absolutely. As a school board member, we have had several executive meetings uh, regarding solely that topic. You know, bless the hearts of those who think the easiest solution is just let teachers carry. And it seems on paper and black and white, yeah, that would make sense. But the reality is there are so many other dynamics we have to consider. Uh, Number one, insurance companies are going to tell you your liability insurance is going to be raised per teacher that you have. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also have uh, situations where, well, how do you decide who gets to and who doesn't and who do you offend through this whole process? And we've also have teachers who said, you know what, I'm not going to be in a building where teachers are caring. I'm out of here. So you got to find that balance. Uh, Just the other day, we had another meeting on school safety issues. It will come out, the results of a survey will come out in a few weeks. But I can tell you one thing. One aspect of the survey asked teachers and others, others on staff, what would you prefer within the building? Vast majority like the idea of an SRO, Mm -hmm. which we have several SROs in our Seymour schools. Only 4% said they would support the option of teachers caring. Uh, so this discussion of, oh, every, all the teachers want to carry, absolutely false. Absolutely false. Uh, I know as an educator myself, I walk through my day each day wondering, okay, if we were under active shooter drill or active shooter right now, what's going to happen? How effective am I going to be? I would say 97, 98% of the time would not be effective because Mm of where I'm at in relation to my students uh, or within the hallway, crowded hallways, crowded lunchrooms. uh, I just would not be effective. Uh, Thankfully, we have 
many people within the law enforcement offices that make their rounds at our schools. Everyone's gone through their safety training. We we do all of our measures to make sure our our schools are as safe as possible. And I, I know that's true for every school out there. Uh, do we really want our children to live in a school setting where we have everyone caring all the time? And I'll be honest, I was probably on the other side until last summer. Mm-hmm. I probably leaned more towards, you know, some kind of selection of people. And again, mm-hmm. I understand who, how do you offend and, you know, having them go through some training. But I got the opportunity to actually train with the North Vernon Police Department mm-hmm. when they did one of their active uh, attacker drills. And I played the part of just kind of a, a teacher or mm-hmm. a, a student who was going to come around the corner and, and confront the, the officers coming in to kind of yell at them and just, you know, right. kind of frantic. Out of two of the scenarios, I was shot twice. Hmm. And so both times, as I came around the corner yelling, their immediate reaction was to shoot. And that's not a knock on the law enforcement whatsoever. But it opened my eyes to this is what these guys do every day. They train for hours and hours. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't make it. And even in that situation where they're not really feeling the adrenaline and threat because it's not real, Mm -hmm. it's a training they made that mistake twice yes and i just thought i couldn't do that as an educator that's not what i'm trained to do and Mm -hmm. and and i'm a i'm a gun supporter i i own guns same way but i'm not trained to go into a building and do that my campaign manager is on the seymour police force he used to be a teacher at the middle school and he shares with me the reality of the tactical force behind what their training is and the percentage of getting an accurate shot when you're in that type of situation. And he's one that trains consistently. He's also in the reserves with the, with the military. He knows what he's talking about. Right. Mm-hmm. And if he even says, I can't get an accurate shot, how in the world are we expecting the civilians, our teachers, who are not training as much as he is. Right. I mean, because even if you just say you're just going to, I mean, that teacher has to go through a certain training, you know, Mm -hmm. like even if you say like every, every single summer they have to, I mean, like that's not the kind of training like you guys talk about with the police department that they do, you know, Mm -hmm. almost on a daily basis. A few years ago, I was uh, part of a meeting where they brought in one of the gun safe boxes Mm -hmm. and, to help convince uh, some of us on the school board to consider this option. And I looked at several who were promoting this, and I said, you don't work with sixth graders very often, do you? (laughs) And they're like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, all I have to do is I need to, I just step out of the hall to deal with a situation, and I have the rest of my sixth graders in the classroom by themselves. Normally, you would hope they're gonna settle down. It doesn't always happen doesn't take much for someone to come over and run their fingers across to put it, try to get figure out the the finger code for it mm-hmm. and they're like well that'll, that'll never happen it it they could never figure it out and right. i went up and and did that second time around the door popped open just by fluttering my fingers across like a sixth grader would. right right uh right then and there i said no uh i know my sixth graders well enough there's going to be an ornery one that's going to try to do something. Yeah. And actually, I've read articles where some of those safe boxes, all you need is a little 
pin to pick at the back and you can open it. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of my concern too with it is because, you know, our ultimate goal in education is to keep firearms out of the building. Mm-hmm. And the more you put in, I think it just opens up the, the greater chance to get one in a student's hand. Correct. So, you know, I, and again, I think I and I hope that the state of Indiana and they've done a great job is I'm a mm-hmm. you know certified school safety specialist and I've been to the trainings. And I hope that that continues because I think it's been done great things for our, mm-hmm. our schools. Uh, and, the you know, we are training better now than ever. We are more vigilant now than ever. Uh, but I don't think, and and agree with you, I think if we're going to put money into training and things somewhere, it needs to be to supply more school resource officers right, in our buildings. Right. right. And we've, I've, I've been proud of our Seymour schools, the safety team uh, that's in place there. We've used grant monies to not only uh, fund our resource officers, but also to set safety barriers throughout every one of our buildings and and i I feel confident that we have made them as safe as possible in Mm -hmm. a most logical sensible way uh i know the state is also considering some more grant money or other funds to uh provide for school safety and i'm also all for that i i love to see a few more resource officers in our buildings and what a great way for our officers to build up a needed rapport with our oh, students yeah. absolutely not just for safety issues but with our drug and opioid epidemic our officers they're building up relationships with kids who are dealing with that at the home front and the kids know hey our these officers are here to help us all right not to get us mm-hmm. and uh you know and with the you know our our sad program well new names now for for the sad program but the drunk driving with uh other issues i've been so proud of our resource officers and the the skills that they've used to develop those positive relationships with our students and that just makes us a stronger community absolutely and and you know something i've always said when it comes to school safety when you talk about you know, elementary schools, you could truly lock them down to a point that they're extremely safe because mm-hmm. most of the threats at an elementary level are on the outside. Right. It's a it's an angry parent coming in. It's mm-hmm. a custodial issue. It's, you know, but when it comes to high school, most of the threat and, and middle school, most mm-hmm. of the threat walks in every day. Yep. Looks just like everybody else, right. you know, and it's for me, it's about us connecting to our kids more and building relationships and knowing them and knowing when those mm-hmm. struggles are coming than making it a prison and locking it down right. because in communities like Seymour, Jennings County, you know, Scottsburg, Brownstown, those schools are not just schools, they're community centers. Mm-hmm. A lot of us right. don't have YMCAs and and these right. boys and girls the high school is the community center. Mm-hmm. I mean, we just went through basketball season. Seymour had 8,000 people walking in there every other mm-hmm. week, every mm-hmm. weekend. Right. I mean, you can't, you can't put in metal detectors and having somebody mm-hmm. walk through and scan all that every time because that's a great asset that this community has and a mm-hmm. great opportunity to bring people in and showcase what mm-hmm. they have. And it's a fact that we've actually deterred several possible situations simply because students had a relationship and a great rapport with the SROs and let them know, hey, there's a student who's saying this on social media, we're a bit concerned. They were able to address the issue and, and turn things around 
before it could even make it to a point where we would be uh, on lockdown. Uh, so, again, more reason why we need to, to build those relationships. Well, we are at about 35 minutes, Nancy. Oh, and I That was quick. <laughs> I want to say um, more than anything, thank you for coming on. But I want to give you one more chance, and I just want to say, for those voters that are headed to the ballot box on May 8th, why should they choose Nancy Franke? I believe the people in our district need a new voice at the state house. Uh, I think we're, a lot of us are over divisiveness. We want to get things done for us. And what hasn't happened, I think, just needs a new approach. And that's where I'm at. Uh, I still am a conservative Republican. I value uh, all the ideals that our district has. I want to present us in a different way and make sure we are heard and that we get things done. And I will tell you this. I really appreciate the chance to sit down and talk with you. I like your perspective. You have a lot of personal um, experience with what you stand behind. And I appreciate that because a lot of people, I think, jump on those hot button issues just because it's it's what people are talking about. But you have a lot of personal you know, experience with where you're coming from. So, well, I thank you both again for inviting me. This was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, no, I I agree totally with him. I think it was, I think it was awesome, and and hopefully, um, you know, those locally that are voting and things can at mm-hmm. least be able to hear and and like you said, hear some of those stories and why you feel, you know, and, and believe the way you do with some of those different hot topics. So I think that's well, great. Thank you, and I appreciate you giving me the time to speak. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. Welcome back to the uh, two-part Married with Children podcast special. Uh, obviously, earlier we got the chance to sit down with Nancy Franke and talk to her a little bit. Now, in studio, we have Jim Lucas, uh, current incumbent House of Representatives member from District 69 running for re-election. Jim, thanks for joining us. Dustin, Callie, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. We're really excited to kind of hear a little bit more about Jim and, and what he's you know what he's working towards and We got a little chance to talk to him prior to turning the mics on, and and we're really excited. So, Jim, I want to kind of start off with giving you the chance. Tell us, who is Jim Lucas? What's the backstory there? Uh, Jim Lucas, just your average Jim, born and raised in Seymour, Indiana. Um, Graduated from Seymour High School. After high school, joined the Marine Corps, went on and served there. Came back to live in Seymour. Um, Eventually started my own business, and I've been a small business owner for 19 years, and been married for 23 to my wonderful wife lynn we have three children um suzanne jack and madeline and then two grandchildren clark and freddie two dogs Vinny and and harvey <laughs> and uh, a pretty simple life really you've uh, got the perfect john yeah. mellencamp small town life right there coming from seymour indiana <laughs> again it's, it, it's 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 a real simple life you know I, I love this this state and especially southern indiana living here um like I said, you know, born and raised here. Uh, I've been out, but come back, and it's just this is where my roots are. We're all, you know, as you served in the Marine Corps, where all did you actually? Where were you stationed? Where all did you serve? Well, that's that's the funny part. I went in O three eleven, which is Marine Corps infantry, and I like to joke, especially with other veterans and people who are currently serving. That's that's one of the things uh, we have kind of a warped sense of humor. I tell people that there are two parts to the U.S. military. There's Marine Corps infantry, then there's um, 
support for Marine Corps Infantry. So I, I did very well in boot camp, graduated top of my class, got honor man, and that was kind of a curse because that sent me, because of that, I was sent to Marine Barracks 8th and I in Washington, D.C., and served on the uh, silent drill team and the Presidential Honor Guard, which sounds really cool, and it was really cool, but after about the third year, it wasn't as cool as what the first year was. <laughs> and uh, to me, the Marine Corps was more than that, and that's why I just served the one tour and then came back. But uh, while I was in there, I had a lot of fun. It was really neat. I was going to say, it sounds really cool, but it also it sounds like something that could be pretty daunting and, you know, a lot of responsibility there. Well, it wasn't that. It's just that's not what I signed up for. I wanted right. to be out in the in the trenches, you know, and, right. and blowing up things. And you don't, you can't really blow things up in the middle of Washington, D.C. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't that location, usually, yeah. That yes. usually causes a lot of your brothers it, to show up in sure. Washington, D.C. Yeah. <laughs> but, Jim, now, how many terms have you served as, as House of Representatives? Currently serve th- uh, three, running for a fourth, okay. which uh, primaries are coming up uh, a little more than a week from now. Yeah. Right. So we'll see, you know, if the people like what I've been doing, hopefully I'll get sent up for a fourth term. And this will come out on, on this Tuesday. Right. Yes. So May 1st. So it'll be a week right before the primaries come in. Yes. And uh, so it'll be an opportunity for everybody to, you know, take a listen to everybody that's that's going to be involved. but. Jim, as you look at those three terms, what are the major accomplishments you're really proud of as, that you, you've, you've accomplished while in office? Well, the, probably the signature thing was my first year there, Jackson County came to me with a bill. Um, there was an oversight on the county level where a, uh, a tax bill had sunsetted. And this was also Governor Pence's first term, and he was very anti-tax. Well, here I bring this bill my first year as a legislator that uh, reinstated this tax for the county level, which uh, had we not gotten it passed would have cost the county about $750,000 a year. Oh, wow. And we got that passed and the governor vetoed it. So uh, we came back on special session for not just for that, but for some other things. But we overrode the governor's veto for my first bill. And I'm thinking, wow, this is this is pretty incredible. You know, what a first year. Um, also, that first year, I got national recognition. I carried an amendment that uh, we passed out of committee that required every Indiana school to have an armed person in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, as soon as that come out of committee, I was grabbed by our press person and sat down and, and she just started grilling me relentlessly because her phone was ringing off the hook from New York, L.A., people all across the country. We were the first state in the nation to do that. Well, that was one of the things. That I think it caught so much attention so fast that um, they they dialed it down a little bit from people above me that have more horsepower than what I did at that time. So that was a pretty interesting first year. Wow, yeah. <laughs> but some of the other signature things that you've talked about, um, leading, uh, not gaining just state recognition, but national recognition as well, are gun rights. To me, the Constitution means what it says as written. So I, I've gained quite the... The uh, reputation there, NRA, Gun Owners of America, Second Amendment Foundation, I have worked with them quite a bit. Uh, not just that, but it's the right thing to do. You know, that Constitution was written in such plain language that the everyday person could understand their rights. You know, and that was on t- intention. So the, the Founding Fathers wanted us to know what our rights were. And again, I, I'm a very avid uh, believer in those. Two other issues that have gained quite a bit of attention is the industrial hemp issue, which we saw that Senator McConnell from Kentucky is fast-tracking a bill right now to take hemp 
off of Schedule 1 and start treating it like any other crop. And I had a bill last year that was recognized nationally as one of the, the best pieces of hemp legislation in America because of its simplicity and what it did and what it allowed. But we, we got that through the House unanimously, went over to the Senate, got it going through committee, and then the governor come in and, and kind of wanted to slow things down a little bit there. But also last year, I, I took on the medical cannabis issue. And that surprised me, the attention that that got. Just, it, it seemed to explode. And as we were talking, you know, before before the podcast started, the, the attention that, that that issue got, um, I think it's just the right timing for Indiana to start down that path. And, you know, to me, it's not a question of if Indiana adopts medical cannabis, but when. And, right. and for me, it's the sooner the better. So those are three major issues that, that I've gained, you know, recognition for being a leader on i'm proud of that let's talk about a few of those a little more in depth and let's let's go right off with with the second amendment and and gun rights um myself i'm an nra member i'm a i'm a gun advocate but you know with with obviously the nation right now major hot button issue and in the news is the idea of where is that line drawn so for you and i know you say that it's very simple where is that line drawn on what should be available to the everyday person and what should arms whatever we can carry when you look at when the second amendment was written by the founding fathers um i believe when they wrote that you can go back and you can study the writings of each individual you know they were just coming off an ass kicking of great britain by basically farmers and, and peasants and they knew the importance of being able to take on a tyrannical, oppressive government. So that was, you know, the Second Amendment. It was put up to the top for a reason. and it, it wasn't written with the type of, you know, firearms in mind. It was written for the type of government that we had. And look at our own state constitution, Article 1, Section 32. You know, the people shall have a right to bear arms for defense of themselves, period. There's no qualifiers there. No licensing mentioning or, you know... One could discuss age limits, but society has adopted 18 as being, you know, an adult. So that's there's a compromise for me is, is okay, 18 to carry. But other than that, um, gun-free zones, we are seeing tragically all too often gun-free zones are simply areas where people that obey gun laws are made easy victims for people that don't obey gun laws. You know, take schools, for instance. I mean, horrible. we can pray that that never happens again, but when we see society deteriorating the way it is, you know, with drugs, with crime, and, and the assault on, you know, family, and, and the breakdown of the family, and the values that go with that, you know, personal responsibility, work ethic, um, characters, values, um, bad things are going to continue to happen, and making good people defenseless, to me, it's it's as immoral as it is wrong, and as a legislator, you know, one of the things I, I ask people constantly, you know, I make laws. Please, I beg you, bring me a law that will stop people who don't obey laws. But until then, we have to quit making innocent people defenseless, you know, in front of these people. And let me ask you this just to kind of expound on that, because I know it's also a federal conversation right now with, you know, the ideas of like bump stocks and, you know, high capacity magazines and things like that where do you stand with that those aftermarket accessories that go on some of these firearms you know is that is that somewhere where you see regulation or you still see hey it's an arm and 
We need to let let the people have it. Hold hold up your thumbs. Okay, your thumbs are they're held up. There's your bump stock. Okay, <laughs> you put your thumb through the trigger guard, hook it in your belt loop. You can do the same thing. Okay, now bump stock. Are people committed to murdering children. Do they care if we have a bump stock law or not? Or <laughs> any, you know, not. anybody out in the open? Right. You know, high capacity magazines. Um, to me, that's dangerous because again, the people that think nothing about murdering another human being they could care less about your mag limit but you now you criminalize an innocent law-abiding person you've taken away one of their best means of self-defense against something that we're reading about all too often home invasion by not just one you know invader but multiple invaders so that right there that's a crime Now, hold people accountable for their actions. You know, how often do we, you know, hear on the radio or or see on the TV or read in the newspaper people that are released early, you know, that have multiple strings of prior convictions. Okay, they're out again. Or one of the most uh, dismissed or pled down charges are gun crimes. So why are we why are we criminalizing innocent people with with laws that they're not stopping anything? Right. And, you know, let's let's rely on facts here. One of the, the sayings I have, I, I love saying this, uh, we have truth, facts, reason, and logic versus guilt, fear, deceit, and intimidation. You know, the facts. Um, actually, gun crimes have decreased by almost 50% in the last 20 years. Okay. Now, that is even as gun sales have just literally exploded. They've gone through the roof. You know, there's an estimated 350 to 400 million firearms in America 100 million gun owners, okay? Now, when you look at that, the actual facts, and and I want to preface this, every death is tragic. But when you look at deaths by firearms, you know, in America, there's 325 million people, 2.6 million deaths on average per year, okay? Firearms are around 11 or 12,000 of that. Now, people were talking high-capacity magazines. I would assume we're talking about the, uh, you know, the scary AR rifle. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, the FBI shows in 2016 there were 374 people killed with rifles. Okay, again, every every death being tragic, but compare that, you know, there were more than twice as many people beat to death with fists and feet, or more than twice as many people died on bicycles. So, so I ask these people that want to go after our, our rifles and our, even more importantly, our gun rights, you know, what is your goal? If your goal is to prevent death, then okay, let's start at the areas where where there are significantly more deaths caused by significantly, you know, other items. And I always worry about when they start talking, you know, they talk semi-automatic, they talk rifle, they talk these these big buzzwords, Jim, and and the problem is you say semi-automatic, but the same shotgun that I use to go deer hunting in the fall is semi-automatic. When you start talking these overgeneralized terms, I don't think some of these people realize really what they're talking about. Oh, no. They know exactly what they're talking about. You've got to learn their tactics. Um, you apply a label to something, it's it's easy to attack. It's easy to demonize. Oh, yeah. Assault rifle. What's an assault rifle? You know, how about an assault two before? You know, if I threw one of your little model cars here and threw, threw it at you, is that an assault model? So, to me, none of my firearms are assault firearms. They're all defensive firearms. And it, it really is that simple. So we have to, um, one, I think our side, we do a very poor job job of engaging be, because the people 
that want to take away our gun rights, you know, first they say they don't. They do. That's their ultimate goal. I mean, study history. You know, history is just full of the ultimate end game of once people start down that path. And that's, again, going back, that's one of the reasons of the Second Amendment. But that's something that we have to be ever vigilant about is to never, um, you know, don't go docile and not engage because they'll come out and then they'll yell and scream and they'll they'll all school shootings, you know, dead children, which is horrible, horrible. And I, I hate saying those words, but that is a topic that we're dealing with because coming off of Parkland, you know, Sandy right. Hook happened just a few years ago. Columbine just had their 20 year anniversary. Mm-hmm. Um, Virginia Tech. OK, all of the schools had something in, in common. They were all gun free zones. OK, Sandy Hook, you know, um, Sandy Hook was the model safe school of what we're trying to replicate today you know we're going to lock the entrances and and buzz the doors where you have to get in and out but i guarantee you, and if you guys are in education anybody moderately dressed or a student because we've seen that's who's been doing most of these mm-hmm. shoes walk up to a door smile at a kid and say hey let me in they're going to open that door okay now the shooter's in okay parkland what do you do he pulled the fire alarm right okay we're we going to do away with fire alarms so they don't do that no can't do that okay um parkland was i hate to say it was a perfect example it was a great learning opportunity of everything that went wrong what can we do to prevent it again okay at at, down in broward county you know they had they were participating in the promise program which was a program that president obama started they wanted to decrease the arrest rates of minorities Okay, how do you do that? Well, they found the easiest way. Just quit arresting them for things. Okay. Hey, it looks looks great on paper. Right. But, you know, Ayn Rand, one of my favorite quotes, you know, you can avoid reality, but you cannot avoid the consequences of avoiding reality. So the police had been called to this the shooter's residence 39 times in just a few years. Okay, not one of those did they arrest him. Had they arrested him one time, that's, that's, that shooter would have had a record which would have prohibited him from legally purchasing a firearm. Okay, he wasn't in the system. Okay, not only that, the FBI failed not once but twice to follow up on two credible threats. You know, the most egregious one was the shooter himself put on his own Facebook page in his own name. He was wanting to shoot up a school. Then about a month before the shooting, another lady called in with a credible threat. Same name, same threat. FBI did nothing. But then and then horribly, you know, when the shooter was inside the school shooting, we had police officers waiting outside. And I just saw a thing on Facebook. that, As a matter of fact, I shared it. There was a, another police officer pulled up on scene. There was police hiding behind trees and cars saying, hey, he's inside on the third floor. Now, I cannot process that as a human being. How if that is your I don't care if it's your job or not. I carry. OK, it's no secret. I carry. If you know that somebody's inside and every time you hear a shot go off, that's a child being murdered, you run in as a moral human being. How do you not go into that situation? Okay, but here, you know, we have all this dependency on government to protect us and government failed at every level at Parkland. Now, what do people come along? They want to make it more difficult for people, for good people to get firearms, to carry firearms, and they want more government. So on what planet? Does that make sense? Let me ask you this, because I'll be interested to hear your your kind of take on it. 
because I believe, and you'll be able to tell me, I, Indiana has that same law to where the police can confiscate weapons if they feel that you are a threat. Is it? I, I forget what the law was called in Florida that they didn't enact there, where because of his threats they could have confiscated his weapons and held them for a time until they finished their investigation. Indiana has has that law. Am I correct? Correct. How do you feel about that? I like it. You have to be adjudicated. I mean, there is due process. So what's wrong with that? You know, as as long as the individual's rights are protected, you know, through the system and it's above table, that's the way it should be. But again, going back to how many laws were ignored at Parkland? Absolutely. So, and again, we have to get away from this mindset that thinking, hey, we need a law to fix this. Laws don't laws don't work on people that don't obey laws. And laws really don't work if government doesn't employ them. You know, I I uh, sponsored a, a piece of legislation that actually passed a few years ago that provided for a five to twenty year sentencing enhancement for certain crimes for certain gun crimes. Let's get these people off the street. If, if you prove yourself a threat to society, you don't need to be in society. Right. But you know, if the court system doesn't use those laws, like ah, we'll we'll plea that down. Well. Okay, there's there's another law, a common sense gun law. You know how many times have we heard that term? We need a common sense gun law. Okay, they're there. They're just they're not being used. They're or they're they're either not being used or being ignored. So. Well, one thing I I would ask is being a teacher and educator. I mean, you've talked a little bit about it. What is your um, thought i mean like as far as as far as protecting schools and i mean obviously there was they've talked about uh you know um arming teachers and all that kind of thing like what 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 is your thoughts i don't want to arm teachers i want to quit disarming teachers you guys have constitutional rights okay we know there's school shooting you get you get somebody that just doesn't care and wants to make a big name for himself in society where are you going to go you're going to go to the school right if you want to do a something that's vile, despicable, and create a horrible tragedy, you're going to go to a school and you're going to do evil things. Okay, now police aren't first responders. Police in that case are second responders. You know, they get there after the fact. So if you, or Dustin, if you, people that that choose to, because when you look at Indiana, you can go on the Indiana State Police website, and I think there's over 830,000 Hoosiers that have a license to carry a handgun. Okay, that's basically one in six Hoosier adults that has a license to carry. So if you're out in public, do a little experiment. Go one, two, three, four, five, carrying. One, two, three, four, five, carrying. One, two, three, four, five, carrying. Okay. We're not seeing the bloodshed. We're not seeing all these gunfights or anything like that. So how is it that all of a sudden people walk across an imaginary line, which is school property, right. and they lose their mind? No. And some people say, well, I don't want school teaching. What if, what if a, a, or a teacher carrying, what if a student attacks that teacher and takes their gun okay are we seeing that with resource officers right now no okay what about well she's a female oh we don't have female police officers <laughs> you know there's some tiny female police officers out there i wouldn't fight yeah oh you know, yeah <laughs> it's all attitude but the thing is i mean the nra uh, has offered to come in you know they they have a very nice program called school shield that they'll come in, do an evaluation, and they'll work with locals. Um, I have talked to literally dozens of very, very good certified NRA instructors that will train teachers for free. But, you know, okay, now let's move past the emotion of that because that's opinion. Let's look at fact. 
Okay, now I'm going to round down just using numbers here to for easy math, not Common Core, but you know regular <laughs> math. Yeah. So, okay, there, there's over 2,000 schools in the state of Indiana. We're going to round down to 2,000. Okay, a resource officer costs the taxpayer about fifty thousand dollars a year. Okay, so simple math—that's a hundred million dollars every year to have one armed person standing there. Okay, Columbine had a resource officer. He's human. Kids waited till he went to lunch. Okay, we saw a resource officer at Parkland. Right. Okay, I'm not going to pick on him. Uh, you know, human being, those things happen. Yeah. Okay, but you you have one person there. What happens when that one person fails? Or if you have a known resource officer walking around in uniform, guess who's the first target? Somebody committed to murdering children. Okay. Or let's look at Sandy Hook. You know, there were 20 children killed there. There were six females. That were there, unarmed, made defenseless by laws that either rushed the shooter unarmed or they used their bodies as shields to try and protect children. Right. Okay. Imagine if just one or two of them would have had a, a handgun. You know, now there is no guarantee. We, we cannot let zero, we can't let perfect be the enemy because people say, oh, you know, somebody got shot. Sure. That's life. I'm sorry. Those things happen. But, you know, right after Parkland, there was a shooting in Maryland where there was a resource officer on site that had the mindset to do what he needed to do and save how many lives. You know, there were 17 at at, um, Parkland. There were 26 at at Sandy Hook. So we don't know. But we know for a fact that had that shooter not been stopped, you know, the casualty count could have been significantly higher, probably would have been. So when I, I don't want to arm teachers or I want to disarm you. If, if you want to carry, I'm going to do everything I can to see that you receive training. And I, I'm not asking teachers to be SWAT teams either. You know, stay in place, be able to, one, protect yourself and go home to your family that night. Mm-hmm. Two, you'll be able to provide at least a credible defense to save the children in your classroom. Or if you feel comfortable, if you see a shooter in the hallway, take that shot if you feel comfortable. Okay, let's not give you guys five-gallon buckets of rocks or little mini (laughs) baseball bats or any of these other insane, I mean, insulting ideas of of what we're seeing out there. Yeah. You know, and and to kind of transition that to to another major, you know, topic that you're talking about and getting away from from the Second Amendment and our— but actually, you know what? I'm going to pause because I do want to ask you about a piece of legislation that you started <laughs> with the Second Amendment, and that's the constitutional carry. Yes. Where are we at with that? What do you, I mean, are we going to continue to push that situation? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, as long as I'm up there, it's Constitution. I mean, read the Constitution. It's that simple. I did a little experiment, and, and you guys being journalists can appreciate this. I actually had an amendment drafted up that took the exact same language that Indiana has recognized to carry a handgun, and I applied that to professional journalists, you know, forcing them to get a license. And that didn't get people talking. But, you know, it did its job because I wanted people to think. And the the really neat thing from all over the country, you know, people were, were writing in. I got drug across the coals, but I loved it. I loved every second of it <laughs> because it proved my point. He, Keith Olbermann, you know, that that was one of the highlight of my conservative. As a matter of fact, I think I just shared on my Facebook uh, this morning going through a picture. Um, Keith Olbermann called me a, what, a sociopath and wanted to run me out of the country. <laughs> but anyway, it, my challenge to anybody that disputes that is, is how, how is it that 
we're okay with using that exact same language to license our Second Amendment right, but if we apply it to a First Amendment right, all of a sudden it becomes unconstitutional. And right. nobody, nobody has been yet you know, to explain that to me in a rational, reasonable way. And also, if we accept the licensing of one right, how can you logically sit there and tell me that the rest aren't in danger? So, well, and I, you know, and being fully transparent, I'm a, both of us are, you know, con or carry permit owners. And, and for me personally, I have no, I have no problem with you knowing that I have that permit. I just don't want to have to pay the money that to Bingo. have my, my right. I actually had another amendment drafted that, that took it even further. Um, if you wanted to vote, go to church be secure in your home, you know, Fourth Amendment, you had to have a license. Now, as, as that, actually seeing that in print is the most vile, reprehensible thing you will ever see because it, say, it sounds crazy. It, it's like, no, what? It is, but it's in legal form. <laughs> right. And you look there and you're like, oh my God, you know, I'm a lawmaker. Okay. We're doing that exact same thing with right. our Second Amendment, Amendment, right? Tell me what's different from our first our fourth or you know our right to vote right right and if we just want to talk about you know state funding i mean you just said eight hundred thirty thousand people are are you know concealed carry permit owners imagine what you would get if you if you did enact that and again not saying that's what we need to do sure but if you just want to talk about the funding of it if you're going to make the funding off the second amendment you could make a fortune off the the other nine (laughs) yeah yeah why not and and you know, too that that was that was a legitimate issue. The people that have become depend, dependent upon that funding stream. Um, last year, I amended a bill that was working its way through the House, and it is law now. It enables every county in Indiana to set up a fund within their low tax to train their local police. You know, because that was that was where that money was going to that that revenue from the licensing was going to police training. I'm like, okay, legit concern. So we took care of that. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. To move to your one of your other major issues, medical cannabis. And Jim, I said this off the air, and I'm going to say it here on the air. You were probably one of the first conservative right-wing Republicans, and I know you've said before, and I appreciate it, that you don't like labels. But to really step out of the box and say this is something, especially in the state of Indiana, that we need to talk about is the availability of medical cannabis. Why Why did you make that decision? Real quick, uh, this is a long story, but I'll try and give, give you the short version. Um, everybody knows last summer when Indiana was going through that CBD issue. Mm-hmm. Is it legal? Is it not legal? Well, and next thing you know, we're the laughing stock of the nation. <laughs> well, okay, I, that got me interested, as it should. You know, as a legislator, well, you know, what's going on here? So I started researching and educating myself on the CBD. Well, once I started doing that and I learned about it, you know, I, that put me in touch. I started reaching out and asking questions, which very quickly, as a conservative Republican, people were like, whoa, you know, this guy's serious. And, and I knew my stuff through just just enough to, you know, get my foot in the door. And so I, I started learning about it. And the benefits of CBD, what it was doing for people. And once I started talking to people, and, and you all, I think you said you, you were on my Facebook earlier, I keep a public page. And, you know, sometimes it can be the Wild West. But <laughs> yeah. it, it was really cool seeing people, you know, tell me their personal stories. 
And that I turned that into a little segment. You know, one of my segments is operation education. And I want people, I throw something out there, and I want you to read it for yourself without any input from me whatsoever. But I started doing from a fellow human being segment. And then I would, you know, put their stories up there. I'd take away their name, you know, and, and try to, uh, where you couldn't identify them. But it was a personal story. And it was amazing the people that had been helped from this. So once I educated myself on what CB, CBD was, what it did, where it came from. And then I started hearing all these personal stories of people that had been helped by it, people who were weaning themselves off of prescription medications and feeling better and not having the side effects of what they were. It was a no-brainer, you know, from there on out. So I worked on on uh, CBD legislation, which I was fortunate enough to be put in touch with one of the leading attorneys in the nation. He actually argued, the person that helped me draft that legislation for CBD, um, argued the, the hemp case, the industrial hemp case, before the Ninth Circuit Court. And he's from Denver, Colorado. So, I mean, this guy's wow. the top of his game. And yeah. they, uh, that yeah. was, I'm like, whoa, this is really cool. <laughs> and, and so I had the, there were 10 bills in the state house that dealt with CBD. Mine was the only bill that dealt with industrial hemp, which is where CBD comes from. Okay, I'm like, okay, if we can sell CBD, why can't we grow the plant that it comes from? And when you look at industrial hemp, it's not just CBD oil, but foods. I mean, there's so many nutritious foods you can get out of this. Um, fibers, industrial uses. You know, Indiana's the number one manufacturing state in the nation. And we're one of the top agricultural states in the nation. We have mm-hmm. Purdue University who's been growing industrial hemp for years. You know, they are the leading technology state, agric- or technology university, agriculture university on the planet. So I'm like, okay, we have all of these three in our state. This, this spells a no-brainer. Okay, but apparently, you know, politics, sometimes the, the one of the bad things about politics is politics. So politics <laughs> yeah. cut away, and, and you know, we'll shoot again next year for that one. Okay, now back to your the, the um, medical cannabis. You know, cannabis and industrial hemp are cousins, but they're two completely different plants. In the fact, industrial hemp, you know, according to federal re- regulations, it is limited to less than three-tenths percent THC. Okay. You can't help but educate yourself on industrial hemp and then start learning about cannabis. So I'm segueing into your original question now. Once I started learning about that, I'm like, oh, I mean, it was just a, a whole new world, an epiphany. <laughs> and hearing more and more stories of, of even more people have been helped. Mm-hmm. And again, through through my research, I, I hooked up with some really great people, um, you know, some people with IndyCan and, and other people outside groups. And I they set up a trip for me. I went to Illinois. I was the first elected official in the United States to do this trip. I went to Illinois and I visited a, um, a cultivation facility and a dispensary. And Channel 13, Mary Mills from Channel 13 actually... Um, they sent a film crew. She trailed this Wednesday and Thursday, you know, the two-day trip, and, and did a documentary on it. But once I got over and saw what they were doing with it and the people that had benefited from mm-hmm. it and how professionally they were handling it. And when you look at the fact there's 29 states that have medical cannabis. Right. Okay. Of those 29 states, they've seen an average 25% decrease in opioid deaths. Now, some states have seen a 50% decrease. Now, simple math. Okay, Indiana's seeing about 1,200 opioid deaths a year right now. You know, that's 100 a month. If we were one of those states that saw a 50% drop, that's literally hundreds of lives we could save the first year. Second year, now we're compounding. You know, we're talking thousands of lives 
that could be safe just on that one area. Now, not to mention the people, you know, pain pills. You know, how many um, people are, are becoming addicted to opioids through pain medication? And the really neat thing, once uh, once this took off, you know, the American Legion is very supportive of this. I got a phone call from a lady one day, identified herself as, as leader of the National Epilepsy Foundation. She introduced herself and said, I've heard of your work. How can I help? You know, the Epilepsy Foundation's behind right. this. It was really cool. There, There's a website, leafly.com, and I encourage everybody to get on. It's really cool. I mean, one of the many that are out there. But they were out in Washington, and they have a really cool website. People, you know, if, if they've got anxiety or ADHD or um, you know fibromyalgia, all kinds of ailments, you can go on there and click on, and it's like a, you know, any other site you call in and people say, give their reviews. Well, the, I, I emailed, I got on their website, I emailed, hi, this is State Rep Jim Lucas I'm from Indiana, trying to bring medical cannabis to our state. You know, here's my cell phone. Can you call me? About 10 minutes later, I get a call from um, mm-hmm. this this company. And they, hi, this is so-and-so with Leafly. We've heard about you. How can we help? Oh, really? Yeah. I'm like, where are you guys at? They said, we're in Washington State. I'm like, And I started laughing. I'm like, okay, have you heard about me? <laughs> and he said, well, in the industry... Indiana is considered probably one of the most regressive states that will never get medical yeah, cannabis. Oh, yeah. yeah. Hey, you know, you know, we just got Sunday alcohol sales. So I know, right? We're moving, <laughs> we're moving up in the yeah. world. <laughs> and sadly, I, I tell people, you know, this is 2018. I, I've got, what, 82 years to drag Indiana kicking and screaming into the 21st century. <laughs> but anyway, he told me about this, and he said, through your work, you know, we kept seeing news reports, Indiana, you know, medical cannabis, and it was really amazing because of all the attention. So... I'll take this platform and run with it if if that's what it takes to benefit people. But the one of the the coolest parts for me when I, I sat amongst I went over to Blooming and I was talking to people, and there was a, a young couple there in their forties, and she was a nurse, and she was taking the CBD, but she had you know uh, some some familiarity with with the with the medical cannabis you know through her work as well, but she was telling me you know she. she she was been in car wrecks and her body was a wreck and she's i'm in pain constantly sometimes it's so bad but i know what these prescription opioids does to your body long term you know the toxic side effects and addiction and then you increase tolerance and things like that so she said i only take them when i have to and when i do that i'm I'm non-productive and i started taking some of this and she said it was really cool because you know i could wean myself off the opioids but she said now i have my life back I'm like, cool. You know, here's a person that this is affected in a positive way. Her husband's sitting right there. And he goes, I got my wife back. And then it hit me like a two before across the head. I'm like, we just went from one person to two people. And then they both said our kids got their mother back. So here's a whole family. Right. You know, it was affected in a positive way. And so now I'm I'm in. You know, I'm as yeah. committed to bringing medical cannabis to this state as I am protecting and advancing our gun rights. Let me ask you this, because, you know, you brought up the attorney from Denver, Colorado and the P- and the group from Leafly in Washington. Where does your do you see it just as medical cannabis or do you see it to decriminalization and legalization of recreational use as well? well look at what the people want. I mean, you know, let's be honest. You know, we we the war on drugs is gone. We've lost. You know, people say that mar- marijuana, I want to call it cannabis because that's really its name. That's true. Right. Cannabis. Yeah. Okay. Cannabis, they call it a gateway drug. No, it's not. You know, I 
I'm a Lutheran. I like to drink. I'm not an alcoholic. You know, if there's a gateway drug, it's alcohol. Okay. Now, we have a law. You have to be 21 to drink. How's that working out? <laughs> okay. Cannabis is a Schedule One drug. You cannot buy it, but you can get it in almost any middle school across the state, you know, across the country. You can get it in prison. So, you know, let's quit fooling ourselves. Let, let's be honest and have an honest conversation. You know, these people, that they're, they're going to go out and do things. You know, we've seen what's done. People, okay, in the absence of, of, of cannabis, they're moving on to harder drugs. So it's not it's not the gateway drug. It's the exit drug for a lot of them. And, and so to answer your question, I'm going at this medical only right now. But when you look around, it's on the ballot in Michigan. You know, Illinois, Michigan, Ohio have medical cannabis right now. Once it gets in there, the, the two biggest obstacles to cannabis right now is educating people are overcoming the ignorance and stigma. Okay, ignorance, people think, oh, I don't, you know, I don't want to smoke a joint out behind the shed in the alley. You know, there's so many ways of administering, you know, THC into your system. There's gummies, vapes, um, creams you know inhalers and it's there's so many unique ways to get this i want to call it herbal supplement you have to be careful calling it medication you know getting this in your system and letting it do what it's been doing for thousands of years you know mankind's been using this for thousands of years and you cannot overdose from it you know an israeli researcher in the 90s discovered one of the largest systems in our body is the endocannabinoid system okay our respiratory or cardiovascular system does not have cannabinoid receptors on it. You can't, you can't overdose from it. Now, you can alcohol. Right. You, you go chug a fifth of whiskey. You know, you're either going to die or end up in an emergency room to keep from dying. Mm-hmm. Okay. But yet, you know, we're selling alcohol because we saw that prohibition doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now we either have to, you know, we have to be, get realistic about it. Okay. And control it the best we can. Or we can keep fighting it, keep spending all this money, you know, paying police officers to arrest otherwise good people, you know, and we take somebody that just wants to ingest a plant to make themselves feel good. So we arrest them and we go put them in a, in a cage with somebody that's murdered, raped or child molested or, or something horrible. And we treat them the same. And that's wrong. And not that it's all about money, Jim, but can we talk about just the fact of what you just said and how much it could flip if oh. if you accept it? Because not only do we stop spending the money to to chase this and and put the money into it, but then you also get the the tax revenue of right. Oh, it's a win win. <laughs> okay, and Michigan saw it. You know that it's on the ballot this fall in Michigan and. It is so popular up there that I've read reports that the Michigan legislature is thinking about putting it in in the state house to vote on it because politicians being the animals that they are, hey, look at me, I voted on something popular, and they'll get the credit for it. You know, Vermont, uh, right now there's nine states that have recreational cannabis. Vermont was the first state in the nation to vote it in legislatively, and I know it polls extremely well here in Indiana. You know, this is one of the the few issues that across the board, Republicans, Democrats, and Independents, I mean, I think Republicans are the lowest subset there at 50% po- or 56, I think, percent positive. 
Now you start throwing Democrats and independents in there who are even higher, mm-hmm. you're in the 70 and 80% positive. Now you show me one other issue oh, yeah. that pulls that well. Well, yeah. you said Sunday alcohol sales. Sunday alcohol sales didn't poll as well as what no. that does. Okay, and you know, we just recently passed that. It, has the world come to an end? Did, <laughs> did the sun quit coming up, you know? So. I want to, I and we're at, uh, you know, about... 20, 25 minutes here we've been doing this, but I do want to give you a chance to talk about, you know, another issue that is one that, and as we talked earlier, you kind of get hung up on, not you, people get hung up on about you, but it's the education issue. And I think that a lot of people see you as a, as an anti-public education legislature. Um, And I want to give you a chance to kind of address that. Thank you for that opportunity, and thank you both for being educators. And I, I mean that with every cell in my body. Um, I'm a parent. I, mean, I went to school. I graduated. My kids went to school. They graduated. They're in college. They're, who doesn't want their kids educated? But we have to look the system. I want to say that a thousand times. Not here, but I want to keep saying it. It's the system. We take great people that want to teach. Now, you guys don't. You didn't get into education for the money. Right. Okay. No. Okay. You got to, that's what you wanted to do. Okay. Like other people that, that follow their hearts. That's what they want to do. But government comes in and we put so many shackles on our educators that, but before we turn around and say, well, why doesn't the state just back off? Well, the state can't, you know, you look at K through 12 education, it gets over half of our state budget. Okay. So as a representative of the people, the taxpayers, I am obligated. I have a duty to make sure that that program is ran as efficiently as possible. And that's where the problem is. There is no such thing as a non-bureaucratic, efficient, you know, government program. And when you take government-run education, which is public education, being the largest program, government program we have by far, you're going to have all of those vices that are automatically attached to it that are irremovable. Okay, so what's the best way possible that I see that we can let teachers teach? Okay, one of, one of, and we discussed this earlier. One of the biggest complaints I hear, rightfully so, from, from teachers is how can you hold me accountable for this wide array of students coming in here that learn at different speeds, different paces. They have different abilities, different needs. They come from different backgrounds, um, socioeconomic, the whole gamut. You're right. It's we can't, and you guys are put in an impossible situation for that. Okay, who better to choose though than the parents? And that's why people say I'm anti-public education. Nothing can be further from the truth. I'm pro-choice when it comes to education. I'm pro-educational choice. Now, parents out there, if they like their public schools, by all means, please keep sending your children there. But in my method, um, as long as it's in our constitution that government indiana government has to provide an education you know and it has to be equal i would just as soon put the parents in charge and with within that same breath say let teachers teach and give them the freedom to provide the sort of education that those parents are seeking out for their children and it really is that simple but but until we can get to that point we're still going to keep going down this path where you know, people such as myself, elected officials who every two years 
you know, the face changes at the state house. Right. So you go, you go like, okay, what's coming at us this year? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. We're just, <laughs> wait, oh, oh. we're just waiting for session just to figure out sure. how we have to adapt and change. Okay. Now, wouldn't it be great if, if the parents, okay, you're a math teacher. Uh-huh. Okay. Awesome. Wouldn't you just love to be able to teach math? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I would. Okay. Now, now what if you could teach math the way you want to teach? I went to a seminar one time. And I saw um, uh, Mr. Khan from the Khan Academy. Right. And told about his method, which to me is phenomenal. You know, you're, you're educating children at their pace, and they don't move on to the next step until they've mastered the previous step. Okay. Now, not to say, okay, like, like right now, we'll take one or two systems and apply that to everybody. Okay. I hate grade-based education. Personally, I hate it. Because not all 12-year-olds learn at the same pace, right. at the same level, at the same speed, with the same method. But you being the expert that you are, you can identify how kids are learning and at what speed. So let you figure that out. You know, who am I to tell you how to do that? But that's the way our system is set up. Right. And that's wrong. V- Jim, I'm gonna Cal. You got anything else for Jim? No, I think I'm. I think it's good. We're at we're at about 40 minutes. We've been in here together, and it goes Jim, fast. It yeah, does. It does. Before I let you off the hook, I want to ask you one more thing. Again, this is going to come out on Tuesday morning, um, May 1st, but it's going to be a week away from those primary votes, and and I want to give you the opportunity that why on that Tuesday, May 8th, should voters walk in and and pick your name? Well, but- one, I'm up there um, to do the right thing. I'm, I didn't go up there to be a politician. I got into government because I was upset with how government was functioning. And the best way to fix it is dive in and just, you know, get involved. People know where I stand on the issues. Like I said, I keep an open Facebook page. I don't know how to make myself more accessible or open. I put my cell phone number on my business cards. I'm out and about. I'm a small business owner for 19 years. I take that experience up to the state house. Um, you know, I've been accused of being uh, uncompromising and rigid. You know, as a small business owner, I compromise every day uh, with my customers. Of course, you have to provide them a good product. Uh, I have to make a profit. If I don't make a profit, I don't stay in business. Right. I compromise with my employees. You know, they, there's constant compromises there. So, you know, nothing could be further from the truth there. I have proven myself as having the courage to get in on the very, very tough issues and not just, you know, be a yes vote, but to be a leader. And I think my record speaks for itself right there. And I want to continue that. I'm, I'm pushing some very big issues right now that are getting not just state attention, but national attention. And we're making incredible progress. And I want to continue with that. You know, the, the industrial hemp legislation, I want to get that passed. Of course, the gun rights is always going to be there. Um, and then the medical cannabis. You know, we're really, really close. You know, for for a state that just adopted Sunday alcohol sales for the, the Indiana House to vote unanimously to do a summer study on medical cannabis is just phenomenal. So I'm very excited about that. And I want to continue with that work. Well, and I want to say, Jim, and you brought up that, you know, people may see you as rigid, but I want to thank you, first of all, because, you know, we're a small time podcast out of Crothersville, Indiana, and it's a passion for my wife and I, and we reached out to you in an email and you immediately <laughs> responded and said, heck yeah, I'll drive down and come on. And I appreciate that. I appreciate you coming on to, to kind of give your views of the issues and no matter what, and we kind of gave both candidates. I know there's a third that we didn't get on, but 
We gave you and Nancy an opportunity to come on here. No matter what, to all of our listeners, what I would like to say is on May 8th, get out and vote. No yes. matter where you fall, you, both candidates got an opportunity to speak. But get out and vote and, and get yourself in the polling situation and use your rights to actually choose who is running the you know, government because that's that's as important as anything else we have. Absolutely. No, I I appreciate you coming on. I I really do appreciate, especially uh, like you said, you know, all the hot button issues, and you you aren't afraid to you know say, hey, this is where I stand. This is what I whether it's the popular thing or not. And so as just a, I mean, I appreciate that for from all different aspects. So well, the thing, and and I want to make it clear, I I do listen, but you know, I'm not afraid to give my opinion where I stand on right. the issue, and, and I tell people that you know, I this is where I stand. This is why I stand. Prove me wrong. And if you can prove me wrong, I'll be the first person to say, hey, I was wrong. Yeah. You're right. Now, you know, let's let's team up and, and go push this issue. But I I I do, I think, a very good job of I try to anyway. Let me say let me back up. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't always come across. But, but no, I, I'm open and, you know, I, I make myself accessible and, and I'm very passionate about the issues. And sometimes that comes across as being, uh, you know, pushy. But I consider it passion. Yeah. Well, Jim, thank you, and I wish you all the best of luck in the, the May 8th primary. And uh, after that, on to the actual uh, November election, and, and I really appreciate you coming on. Yes, My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you.